gospel message is a call to action. In fact, God's message to mankind has always been a call to action. An online business dictionary defines a call to action as words that urge the reader, listener, or viewer of a sales promotion message to take an immediate action such as right now, call now, or on the internet, click here. A retail advertisement or commercial without a call to action is considered incomplete and ineffective. And that reminds me of something that Keith Sharp taught me. A gospel sermon is not a gospel sermon unless there is an application made at the end. In other words, unless there's a call to action. So I'm reading you all these things, I'm telling you these stories, therefore go and do such and such. And that's pretty much the structure in the gospel. Jesus is always structuring his his interactions with people, ending with a call to action. When he started preaching, when John the Baptist started preaching, it was a call to action, right? Repent, because the kingdom of heaven is near. And that's what we have here in Matthew 4. When he started collecting his disciples, he said, come follow me. And then in James 1, James 1 not only includes the theoretical thing, which it says, be doers of the word and not just hearers, but also gives some specific calls to action in that passage in James 1. True religion that God accepts is to look after the the widows and the... um, Orphans, orphans, etc., etc., etc. Basically, widows and orphans is just a shorthand for you got to be looking out for people who can't take care of themselves. That's a call to action. If you're really a disciple of Jesus Christ, you're going to be looking out for people who can't take care of themselves, and you're going to do what you can do to help them. Welcome to the Believe and Follow podcast, episode 20, Call to Action. Let's read James chapter 1. 19 to 26. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what 
he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. The progression of thought in this passage presents a number of action calls. The reader is being prompted to specific changes in behavior in order to produce the righteousness of God and save your souls. But there is also a more general call to action. Be doers of the word and not hearers only in order to be blessed. And then a final call to action to look after those in need and keep oneself unstained by the world. Now these words are directed to believers to those in the church. But of course the call to action applies just as urgently, or perhaps even more so, to those who are not in the church, those who are not disciples of Jesus Christ. Now everyone pretty much considers themselves, in a general sense, more or less Christian. In other words, most consider that their lives are generally acceptable to God. But God's word is full of specific calls to action in order to be acceptable to him and save our souls. There are specific steps we all need to take, just as there are specific steps we all need to take to obtain the goods and services we see advertised every day. Let's get Jeremy's take on call to action. I mean, just some random verses and passages that... You know, seem to have some sort of thing that it's telling you to do at the time. Matthew 6.33. Okay. You know the verse? Off the top of my head. So if it's in Matthew 6, it's, it's uh, Sermon on the Mount. Is it before or after the section on prayer? It should be after. After the section on prayer. 6.33? Yeah. So it's like the next to the last verse. Okay, that's a good one. <laughs> it seemed to fit, you know. So saying, you know, do this first. Do it, you know, in essence, it's telling you do it now, and then God's got your back, basically, you know. Not that he's going to make your life, you know, perfect, but he's going to take care of you. This is an interesting verse to bring up, because advertisers, when they try to inspire you to some sort of action often try to do it by making you anxious about something like if you see those commercials for a life lock or something like that somebody might be stealing your data right now you know you need to be protected so the call to action is but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you see that's a great ad line the only product you're ever going to need. Mm -hmm. Kingdom of heaven. <laughs> Seek his kingdom and you'll have everything that you need. And he's saying, don't be anxious, but all you got to do is like, calm down. <laughs> don't worry about things, but just seek his kingdom. That's a good one. I like that. Let's see. 
And this was an, a, an interesting one, I thought. And there are multiple verses that have the same idea. But 2 Thessalonians 3, 14 and 15. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So basically it's the idea of, you know, if somebody that says that they're a believer isn't actually following, and, you know, you know that, make sure that you don't pretend like all's well, you know. Make sure you point it out to him, and then if if they don't change, then basically, <laughs> basically you know, have nothing to do with him until, you know, or if he decides or he realizes that he's made an error. I thought that was an interesting point, I guess. And how does this kind of thing compare to the attitude you often see in the religious world? To me, it's kind of just more like, you know, it's okay, you know, you can kind of do that. We're all sinners, that sort of. Right. I don't see a whole lot of, you know, you can't, <laughs> you can't be in our group <laughs> kind of thing. If all the believers were following this particular instruction, then what effect would that have on the wide variety of religious teachings that you have today? It would be much, much, very, very few people would be Christians. Oh, there would be much less variety, yeah. you know, there'd be much less variety in teaching among people calling themselves Christians. Because you have people, all sorts of people saying, well, we're disciples of Jesus Christ, and they believe all sorts of different things. Now, this is definitely connected with that instruction of being united in the same mind and judgment, right? Mm -hmm. Because he's saying, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with them. Background sounds. Um, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. So that's like in 1 Corinthians 4, the idea of withdrawing from a person. You take note of that person, you mark them, and have nothing to do with them. But you're not supposed to be hostile to them. The idea is to just make it clear to the guy or the girl, make it clear to the person that you're not with us on this. We no longer have fellowship now. We no longer share in the same understanding of Scripture. But warn him as a brother. So don't treat him nasty. Don't make fun of him. Don't call him names. Don't make him an enemy. Because if he figures out he's wrong ever, how's that going to work if you've made him an enemy? And the objective being for... To bring him back. To bring him back. Exactly. Exactly. Do you think this is for anything you don't disagree about? Or the important points... Well, it's like, you know, for instance, if somebody for thinks instance. that that Jesus only overturned tables once, does that mean? <laughs> I thought you were going to go with like the, you know, well, I like Taco Bell and you like Burger King. Obviously, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about things relating to the gospel because he says about the things in this letter. So it could be more broadly applied to the entire gospel. If you don't have unity about something, you have to ask why don't you have unity about it? Like, for example, the overturning of the tables of the, the money changers. I hadn't given any thought before Claude brought it up. But what did we do? We were like, well, let's open up our Bibles and take a look and see what we can figure out about this. As long as everybody has the attitude that we're going to go with what the Bible says, 
then you're going to agree, because the Bible is clear that he did it more than once. I think so. To, like it, yeah. yeah, it's hard to insist that he only did it once from what the Bible says. Mm-hmm. So if somebody's insisting that, you have to ask yourself why. Like I said, I saw the example on the internet where some people would want to argue with you about that because they have some other teaching that doesn't come from the Bible. In that case, then, then yeah, if in our little group somebody said, no, nah, no, nah, he just overturned it once because uh, that's why the Pharisees wanted to have him executed, then we would say to that person, well, why do you think that? Show us where it says that in the Bible. And then if we continue that process, we're going to come to unity. If we're all looking at the same text, and we're all trying to understand it, then we're going to come to unity. And quite often these conflicts come from people who have a false understanding. Now, it may take time. Because let's say, what if you grew up with that teaching? The first time we have that discussion, you might not, even if you didn't have anything to say about it, intellectually you might get it, but it may take a little bit of time to turn your heart around on it. Well, in which case, we should all be patient, give each other the time to do it. Yeah, I wouldn't say, let's withdraw from that. Quite often, though, when it comes to something that you would withdraw from somebody for, quite often there's some root cause why they're disagreeing about things. And it's the root cause that you're withdrawing from them for as opposed to the different issues. And often the root cause is somebody holding to the traditions of men as opposed to what the Bible says. It's certainly a judgment thing. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. I mean, to me, it's, it, it, it makes sense logically to be those things that you know, are pretty obvious in the Bible Know, that you can't really argue against them saying this and that are and or that are very important to you know the, the root idea of salvation of God of you know, things like that like minor things you know this is history that we're arguing about the, you know turn, overturning the tables I don't right. think either way you know you believe is going to condemn you to hell I don't think so. So that, I think you could still disagree on those kinds of subjects. Because, you know, who knows? They might just not be chronological. You know, maybe they just decided, hey, I'm going to put mine at the beginning here. And then this this other guy decided, hey, I'm going to put my story of it at the end. It's possible. Sure. But it, but it doesn't really sure. matter, I don't think, in the grand scheme of... If somebody wanted to insist that it was only once, I would probably be inclined to let it go. But like I said, I wouldn't make a note of why. Anyway, go ahead. Give me another one. All right. Um, this one's pretty obvious. Mark one fifteen. And saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. We have this in various forms in all the gospels. Mm-hmm. But we also have this idea because... John the Baptist was to be the forerunner of Jesus, like the herald, because that's what you send a herald beforehand, before the king comes in, to make sure people are prepared for the king. So this is the very first big call to action that I would think of in the New Testament. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, or the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So what does it mean that it's at hand? 
it's here or coming real quickly. <laughs> it's nearby, yeah, right. It's not far away, you know. So basically, it's you know saying, do it now, you know, repent now. Don't wait for some time in the future because, you know, you don't know when it's actually that the end is actually coming. Right, 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 right. Exactly. Act now. As long as it is called today, is what the writer to the Hebrew says. Right. That's a great call to action. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to repent? To a one neighbor. To. Yeah, I think so. It's, you know, ask for forgiveness and then turn away from what you're doing. The way I like to put it is turn away from sin and turn to God. Because one might have the idea, okay, I want to turn away from sin. But if they don't turn to God, it doesn't really do them any good. If they turn to another. Right, exactly. Yeah, well, let me try this other thing. I might not eat cake, but I'll. Uh, Soda. That's definitely a call to action. It's definitely one that I think of. Repent, because the kingdom of God is at hand. John the Baptist came, and he tells them what that means. He tells them to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Yeah, try Luke 3, verse 7. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to, to say to yourselves we have Abraham as our father so you've got this call to action where he says repent and for the kingdom of heaven is near and the crowds asked him look at verse 10 what then shall we do and he answered them whoever has two tunics is to share with him who is none and whoever has food is to do likewise tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not exact money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. There's the general call to action, repent. And then here in Luke's Gospel, he has this dialogue with people that in specific walks of life, and what he recommends that they repent of. So there's a general call to action as these specific ones. If you're someone who's, who's extorting money by threats because you're a soldier, don't do that, etc., etc. Any thoughts? That's sad. I mean, I've read through Luke a couple of times, and I don't think I've ever really noticed that little section 10 to 14. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm sure I've read it, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah. John the Baptist appears briefly on the stage... And then, uh, you know, he's arrested and executed. It's also an interesting thing about the role of prophecy in this. Because there was a great deal of expectation that the Messiah was due to come. And they often do that in advertising. They're hyping a product before it comes. And you get a great deal of expectation. Apple does that. The, uh, you know, well, the iPhone 10 is going to be coming out get it. The prophecy was pointing to a specific time and a specific place for the for the Messiah to be coming from and people were looking for it. So they were eager for the product when when it uh, came on the scene. Give me another one. Uh, let's see. Maybe Romans 12 1. And, and interestingly, this one I think just by the words I think it ties into the whole worship and spirit idea like because it says you know which is your spiritual worship so which is 
worshiping in spirit. Yeah. So whatever what it says early, which is uh, read it, read the whole verse. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. But, I mean, that seems to you know says your spiritual worship, worshiping in spirit, is by is presenting your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. So what does he mean by that, though? Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. What does that mean? Basically, I mean, you don't own you. <laughs> like, you know, that's, that's your natural instinct of, you know, you'll do what you want to, but you have to come to the, the decision that your life is not your own to live, that there is something else that it's intended for to do and if you choose that then that's you know if you choose to give your life to God then that is what is holy and acceptable so what does holy mean set apart set apart right and we know what acceptable means so this idea of holy being set apart and then the idea of sanctified which means being made appropriate for God's purpose that's where the acceptable comes in so he could have said holy and sanctified. What part then is he asking them to play in this sanctification process? Mm -hmm. So it's present. That seems to be the only thing that they do there. Or yeah, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. So then verse 2, he elaborates on what he means by present your bodies as a living sacrifice. So he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Work backwards from this idea. So by testing you be able to discern, doesn't that imply an ongoing process? It's not just a one-step deal. Okay, yeah, we presented our bodies as a living sacrifice acceptable to God. Okay, we checked that off our list. What's next? That this is an ongoing process because before you came to the gospel, you had nothing telling you to be different than what's in the world, to be holy. Your thinking, your desires, and what you did may well have been conformed to the world. So he says, do not conform to the world anymore, but try to figure out what's pleasing and acceptable to God by testing. And it's also be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That's an interesting turn of a phrase. What does it mean by the renewal of your mind? By replacing, in my mind, I think, so, by replacing what you have there with what is, you know, holy and acceptable to the Lord. And figuring out, you know, through reading the Bible, through praying, uh, what what does God desire of us, basically? What does God want us to do? In Ephesians 5.18, where it says, do not get drunk with wine, in some of the translations, though, it doesn't say it in the ESV. The ESV says, for that is debauchery, mm -hmm. but be filled with the Spirit. There's some places where it says that's dissipation. Dissipation is like the opposite of renewal. The recorder, as it's using up the batteries is dissipating their charge. But if I put the batteries in a battery charger and recharge them, well, now they're being renewed. 
their charge is no longer being dissipated. In both of these words, there's this the idea that it's a process. Dissipation takes time. Renewal takes time. And so in Romans 12, he's talking about haste and see that the Lord is good. Test what is acceptable to God. So what is the exact call to action? It certainly isn't a one... No, it's, I mean, it's a process of action, I guess, instead of just a... You know, click here kind of thing. Yeah, it's not a one-shot deal. It's like enter into this process. Yeah. And the end result will be being acceptable to God, which is what we're all looking for. Do you think that, it, to me, that that idea of that by testing you may discern means that you're going to fail along the way? Do you... Do you you have that same sure. idea? As an integral part of the gospel, there's this idea that you could fail, but you have a way to handle failure. The only one who didn't fail was Jesus, Jesus right. So we're all going to fail. What do you need to do when you do make a mistake and someone brings it to your attention? To turn away. Right. To say, you know, to repent and then figure out what's right and then do that next time. First John 1 says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. Walking in the light and the blood of Jesus cleanses us. It's a process. It's an ongoing. It isn't has cleansed us, but we're in the process of being cleansed. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And then in verse 9, so I'm in First John chapter 1, right? And then in verse 9 it says, If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So this is speaking to believers, right? The idea of confessing your sins is not just get in front of the church and say, I have sinned. No, the idea is if I sin and you come to me and say, hey, James, that thing you did was a sin. And I say, no, it wasn't. And you're going to be like, wait a second now, that, no, 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 I, I read the Bible, that's a, that's a sin. What would be the right answer for me to make when you come to me and say, James, you sinned? I would say, let me read my Bible and figure out if it's a sin, and then if it is... That would be good if I wasn't no. sure. What if I knew it was a sin? What if it was like, I, I knew, stole then, something? Then what do I do? Then you... Apologize to them and repent right then. Right. Pray that I can be forgiven of this sin. And that's what the confession is. Oh, yeah, you're right. I did that. Pray that I can be forgiven. That's what he's talking about. So this testing, I might not be aware of some requirement that Scripture is causing me to change in my life. Or I might say, perhaps I should do this. And then that doesn't work out so well. Quite often, someone else will see it and not working out so well before I realize it. We're slow to realize these things in ourselves. So you might say to me, you know, that plan that you started out with, maybe that wasn't such a good plan. Maybe you need to do things a little differently. Then let's see what we can do about that so we can do better. What does the word fellowship mean? If we walk in the light as he is in the light, meaning who? God. Who's he? God, Jesus, right? We have fellowship with one another. So Jesus is in the light, we're walking in the light, then we... What's the word I'm looking for? Communion? Communion. Yeah, we share. We share in this walking in the light. If one of us is not walking in the light, if I'm committing a sin and you realize that it's a sin, 
then we're no longer sharing. There's a disruption in our being united. In the, so that has to be fixed. So you come to me and you say, hey, you sinned. What do you do about it? Boom. If I don't listen to you, then what would your next step be? That step of, you know, what is it here? Um, <laughs> have nothing to do with them. <laughs> well, but maybe there may be steps in between. What does Jesus say? But if your brother sins against you, you go and tell him and you want him over. If he doesn't listen to you, then maybe you bring somebody else. Yeah. And then if he doesn't listen to two of you, then maybe a larger group. And then tell it to the whole church. And then if he doesn't listen to the church, then you can withdraw. And of course, that implies a lot of stuff, right? That implies a lot of things about this fellowship that we share. Because you got to turn to somebody else in the church and say, hey, James is sinning and he doesn't seem to want to stop. Let's see if we can help him by pointing this out to him. That means that you and this other guy have to agree. Mm -hmm. So you're all sharing in the same teaching. I'm the one that's out because I'm doing something wrong and I don't want to admit it. Same thing when you take it to the whole church. The implication is the whole church is sharing, has fellowship, which means what? They understand. It. They're united in the same mind and judgment. When the sin happens, you don't have to teach them all why this is a sin. That takes work, and that will take time, too. That's a process. So you have to have this group of people who are familiar enough with their Bibles and understand it enough so that when you say to them, yeah, I see James doing this thing, he's sinning, they're all like, oh, yeah, he is. Let's all see if we can help him. Because if the whole group is, like, perfectly united and they come to me and say, look, you got to stop doing this, it's harder to resist the whole group. Who wants to be at odds with the whole group? Even more importantly, who wants to be at odds with God? Because the idea is the whole group is in agreement in the light as he is in the light. So it's not that they all just agree that, okay, we're all going to wear purple shirts. No, we all agree in what God has given to us. So we all share it. So now we're able to keep that going. If someone seems to be wandering away, we can pull them back. And, and I don't think it's, it's a thing of judgment necessarily, you know, of, you know, shame on you, you're sitting kind of thing that he's wanting there. It's, it's a, I care about you, you know, I don't want to see you going off in this way that, that I, I believe the Bible says you shouldn't. So I'm going to, you know, do whatever I can. I'm going to tell you about it. I'm going to try to get these other people who care about it, you know, I think that that's part of the idea of, you know, they'll know that, that uh, unbelievers will see the love that we have for each other and want to be part of that. And know that we're disciples of Christ. And that's what that phrase that you read earlier, it's warn him as a brother. Mm -hmm. There's not anger or rancor or nastiness. It's like, we want to be back in fellowship again, so this is a problem. And let's work together to get it straightened out so that we can have unity and fellowship. We can be sharing in the same understanding, be united in the same mind and judgment. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, it's, I, don't, I don't think you see that. I don't see that in any of the churches that I've been to. Like, not that there has have been people, you know, in those churches that do that but as a whole 
I think there's just so much uh, humanness, <laughs> human problems. <laughs> Too human. much humanness. Yeah, I mean, it's basically, you know, we're supposed to die to that, of our fights with each other, of our pettiness, of our anger, and all that stuff should go out the window when, when we're, well, hopefully in our entire lives, but especially when we're in fellowship with each other. But I don't see that. It's just churches, you know, church buildings are just another place where people come together just like they would at a restaurant or at a ball game or yeah people come together to stab each other in the back or do whatever yeah, yeah. it's sad I, I don't i don't see why anybody would want to join those kinds of things honestly so yeah are we doing exactly the opposite of what jesus says to us if you love one another then all men are going to know that you're my disciples and the apostle paul was concerned right about unbelievers coming in and and how they would view you. Let's make being disciples of Jesus Christ attractive by loving one another, by being this group that we're all pulling together. And you see the benefit in that? But here's a question. How are we going to do that? I think that idea of pointing it out, you know, this it's basically, in my mind, it's, it's very similar to the blockchain ledger. You know, have it all out there so that people can keep you accountable to each other instead of just, you know, holding it in yourself, you know, that, that you have this issue with somebody or that, you know, you don't think this is correct. Because it's never going to, you know, if nobody else knows about it, then it's never going to be resolved, you know, satisfactorily. It's just going to sit there and stew and then you're, you're either going to get sick and tired of them or they're going to get sick and tired of you and... Boom. So, I mean, I think, yeah, it's just, you know, letting people know. Right, so first there has to be this transparency, and this transparency that comes from us being involved in each other's lives, mm -hmm. which is kind of hard to do with the way we're set up in the, in the city. But that's the picture we see in the New Testament. So we have to be more aware of what's going on in each other's lives, but even before that, what do we have to be? Make sure that we're line with the scriptures. Yeah, exactly. Because we have to lay the groundwork, which means we all have to know what the scripture says and have some understanding about how you apply it. So there's a point to our Bible study. You know, a lot of churches get together and they study the Bible each week. It's more like, well, this is what we do. Yeah. There's no point to it. It's not like, well, let's try and understand this so we can apply it to ourselves. I see this thing that's going wrong in our culture. In our, in our little group, I see some people have this problem. Let's work on that and see if we can get all of us together in line with what the scripture says. So you have to start to get some expertise and ability to reason through the gospel. Every single thing, every single call to action we have here is based on you understanding the word. Like, for example, if you're going to choose elders in your local church, well, how are you going to tell who's a good elder or not? Because everybody tries to put on, you know, this front of, oh, yeah, I'm doing okay, I'm, I'm a good person. But, but unless you really know them, you know, unless yeah. you've talked with them, unless you've been a part of their lives, you don't know people. You just right. know the 
the act that they're... It's the same two answers, right? You, first of all, we have to be involved in each other's lives. And secondly, we have to know the scripture. Because you have to see that that person's life that he's living is in agreement with what the scripture says. And they're raising their children, and their children are becoming believing children. Well, that's a judgment thing. You're going to judge the way their children are living compared to the scripture. We really have to become very skillful in reasoning through the scriptures. First, we have to become sufficiently knowledgeable, and then we have to have a method for reasoning through it. So when we have these conversations, it's easy for all of us to, it's easier for all of us to come into agreement. And there's less of a possibility of there being division just because, well, this these guys just don't, you know, they've never read, <laughs> they've never read Romans, so they've never read this verse, etc., etc. You got another one? I mean, one that has a lot in the, uh, the Revelations 2 and 3, the letters to the churches. The letters to know, the churches, all through yeah. That, you know, the, some of the, I just pulled out a couple of the key yeah. words that they pick, says to each other. Like, pick a favorite Repent, one. be faithful, repent, hold fast, strengthen, hold fast, open the door. Like, he's just telling them over and over, do these things because this is where I see you messing up. So, you know. And then he says, you know, these, then to the ones who's faithful, and then he lays out, you know, what's going to happen for the them. benefits you're going to get. Yeah. So, I mean, those, those are all good ones, I think. Yeah. You know, specific for those churches, but also useful for us, too. So he picks seven churches in Asia, and every one of them, there's something that they need to do. You're right. Every one of these letters to every one of these churches has some sort of call to action. So your relationship with Christ is a living and ongoing thing. It's not a one-shot deal. So it's like a product that you have to continue with it. It's like shaving or something like that. We get a razor and that gets dull, so you have to get a sharp razor. But it's not just a one-shot deal. Oh yeah, okay, I shave, now I'm done for the rest of my life. No, it's an ongoing process. And Jesus shows them here that it's an ongoing process. Yeah, I see what's going on in your church and you gotta stop or else the end result is going to be you're no longer going to be a church of Christ. I'm going to remove your candlestick. Very likely, some of these didn't listen. And then very likely has happened over and over again where Christ has removed their candlestick. So now you're no longer the church that I'm building. But they're still calling themselves a disciples of Jesus Christ. And they're not following his instruction. Yeah, that's another good one. Okay. you just throw one punch, you know, it's a, it's a whole fight, it's a continual struggle you know, to, to keep your faith, to make sure that you're not being left behind by, you know, if, if, as, as soon as you stop, I guess, this, this, faith, uh, this, this fight, this race, you know, you're not growing anymore, you're not continuing to stay in the word so 
you know, even if you have set a good foundation, you're you're going to be, I guess, left behind. Yeah. Eventually, so you just have to keep doing it. That's the call to action there. Fight the good fight of faith. You know, the idea of there being a fight means what? You're fighting against someone. Yeah, exactly. There's someone opposing you. Let's say I'm explaining the game of football to you, and you and I are standing on a football field. So I hand you the football. And I say, all you got to do is take this football and run it down to the end zone. <laughs> and you're like, oh, I can do that. <laughs> and there's 11 you know? guys exactly. trying to beat you up. But then you, you start running and you realize, uh-oh, there, there are 11 people trying to stop me. So it's a fight because you're going to get opposition. And if you're fighting with someone, what do you have to do? <laughs> you got to finish the fight. If you're fighting with someone and they're not finished yet, and you go, okay, I'm done, <laughs> what's going to happen? <laughs> you're going to get knocked out, exactly. So you're in it for as long as you're having opposition. He who stands firm to the end will be saved. So how long is the fight going to be? Till the end. Till the end, for the rest of our lives. The Apostle Paul said what? Run the race like you want to win. So only one, only only one, one person gets the prize. Yeah, everybody competes, only one gets the prize. So you're going to run like somebody who wants to get the prize. You're going to run that football down the field like you're going to try to outrun those 11 guys who are trying to tackle you. That's the kind of effort that we should be making for the gospel. That's why it's a call to action. He uses another action word here. He says, take hold. Yeah, take hold of the eternal life. What if I toss the football to you and you're just... Right, exactly. You have to take hold of it. You have to grasp it. That's an action. That's also an ongoing thing. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. A little bit of that's specific to Timothy. But it definitely applies to us. It's like you made the good confession. In other words, what? When you got baptized, you said, I'm going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. I know I'm a sinner. I repent. I'm going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Okay, so now I'm done. Everything's fine now. No, that's just the beginning of the fight. That's like the beginning of the race. You're getting started, and um, the starter's pistol has just gone off. Now you've got to run the race. That's a call to action. So many people do not view their spiritual life as a call to action. There's a dual thrust of this message. One thrust is for people that are in the church. There are lots of people who are in the church who call themselves Christians, and they're not following this pattern that we see in Scripture. They've got a problem. So this is a call to action, repent. But it's also a call to action for unbelievers. What does this say about the people who aren't trying at all? The other team's going to win. I mean, like right. if, if you don't play the game, you know, you're, you're still on the field. So you either win or lose. It's not, it's not just, you know, you can't, you can't sit on the sidelines, I guess. What happens if you sit by the sidelines? Automatic loss. <laughs> So the other threat of this is for the unbelievers, the people who are paying no attention to any of this religion business. This should be a call to action for them. When John went out, John the Baptist went out and said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that repenting was for everybody. 
not only for the religious people, but for the unreligious people also. First Peter chapter 4, verse, what verse is it? First Peter 4, verse 18 says, If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Before that, he says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So that's a call to action. So judgment's going to begin at the household of God, which means the people in the church are going to be judged. So people look and say, you know, I don't think everybody in that church are exactly living a righteous life. God's going to say, yeah, I agree. And judgment's going to start with the believers. But then we're going to move on to those people who are not and what's going to happen to them? <laughs> Do they have a prayer? <laughs> See, at least the people in the church have a prayer. Because <laughs> you might be judged as having been faithful. But if you do not obey the gospel of God, how's that judgment going to go for you? Good, right. So it's a call to action, both for the believers and the unbelievers. The message of the gospel is clear. If we do not properly respond to the divine call to action, we will not reap the benefits of eternal life. Further information available upon request. Act now. This offer will one day be withdrawn without any further notification. Read your Bible for terms and conditions of this offer. Satisfaction guaranteed. If you have any questions, or even if you disagree with any of this, feel free to email me at James at believeandfollow.org. That's all for now. Goodbye and God bless. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Fine.